Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tales of Avatar, the podcast. <laughs> I'm being very, very into the subject of this episode. I really like this one. So I'm very excited to talk to you about it, Acorn. Oh, by the way, Acorn Bandit is here, and I'm Booster Greg. <laughs> by the way. By the way. Let's just get the, get the introductions out of the way. Out of this, get it out of the way. We got, we got so many tales to tell. I am so excited about this. Like... Ah, Me let's too. Go. Yes. All right. So in case you didn't know and you didn't read the title of the episode for whatever reason, this week we're talking about book two, episode 15, The Tales of Ba Sing Se, or as we like to call it, A Kick in the Feels. A Kick in the Feels indeed. So because this episode had a little bit of a different structure to it than what we're used to, uh, I went ahead and took some liberties with the format of the show. So what we're going to do is I'm going to tell you each tale that we go into and who wrote it. And after that, it will be business as usual. But at the end, we will not be talking about our MVP or moral of the episode. We have a hidden surprise for you that we're going to talk about. It's not that big of a surprise. I'm blowing <laughs> it out of proportion, but it still will be a little bit different. And it's very exciting for me and hopefully for you. Also, before we dive into the episode, just really quickly want to thank everyone who's been leaving their five-star reviews, have been emailing us directly at avatarthepodcast.gmail.com, and have been tweeting at us at Podcast Avatar. We super appreciate it. And although we are always perpetually behind on responding to everyone, I do want you all to know that we genuinely read every single email that comes in, and we love it no matter how long or short they are. It's super appreciated, and it means a lot to both of us that you take the time to do so. So thank you. A thousand percent. Yeah. Before we get into the tales, I do want to make a note mm -hmm. that this structure, the tales of Ba Sing Se, was the brainchild of Aaron Ehas. He had the idea to do a special episode full of short stories conceived and written by artists and production staff on the show. This format gave them a chance to take a break from the heavy, epic storyline and create these little slice of life vignettes for the characters. And I think, ironically, by taking a break from the main storyline, we actually learned more about the characters oh, yeah. in this episode. So I'm really excited to talk about that. Yes. And also um, something that this might just be me, might just be Greg being crazy. But I also feel like this helps make it seem like the team is in Ba Sing Se for a long period of time. Yeah, it does. Which I super appreciate. It's not just like a, we fast forward like a couple months and it goes two months later and you don't see anything. I like this like slice of life, get to see what they do in their downtime kind of storytelling. So I'm into mm -hmm. it. All right. The first tale that we get to watch is the tale of Toph and Katara. This tale was written by Joanne Estosta and Lisa Wallander. Now, quick note right off the bat of trivia, the tale of Toph and Katara is the only tale in the episode that focuses on two characters. Yeah, which I thought was nice because we needed some bonding time between Katara and Toph ever since she's like, I really am glad that we have another girl in the group. It's like, yeah. this has been a long time coming. Yeah, this was also my second to least favorite one, though, if I'm being honest. <laughs> Team Avatar gets ready for their day. Aang shaves his head. Sokka shaves his whiskers. It's like those weird teenager whiskers. Sorry <laughs> yeah. if you have weird teenager whiskers out there. I used to have them too. It's not great. Anyways, uh, and we finally get to see how Katara's hair loops work. That was always yeah, a big mystery. That was really cool. Katara goes to check in on Toph, who is passed out and a mess. When Katara asks if Toph is going to get ready for the day, Toph gets up, hocks a loogie into a spittoon, and then says that she is, in fact, ready. Katara does the typical mom thing and asks if Toph is going to wash up since she is covered in dirt. But Toph replies that what Katara calls dirt, Toph just calls a healthy coating of earth. Katara looks at Toph and says that she knows exactly what is needed, and that is a girl's day out. Do I have to? Toph protests. But Katara assures the young earthbender that it will be fun. Uh, some other quick notes. This is the only episode in Avatar The Last Airbender in which Sokka is seen with his own facial hair. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty neat. And this is the first time that we've seen Aang shave his head. We will see it again next season, next book. Yeah. And I think that's also what helps give this a sense of time lapsing because yeah. we're able to see their like day-to-day -day routines and their living life 
in the city and they've been there for so long, they have their daily routines down. You know, it's like, yeah, true. This is also the first time we're seeing them enjoy their time in Bossing Say this whole episode. So it's like they've really settled into the city life. This is actually the only time that we're going to see them enjoy their time in the city of Bossing Say <laughs> as well. Very true. So, yeah. And also, like, we've never seen Ang shave his head before. Yeah, it's just always been perfectly bald. Yeah, it just kind of it does ground them a little more in reality as Mm -hmm. well, as much as you can ground a concept like the Avatar. Anyways, Katara and Toph go to the Fancy Lady Day Spa, and this is the start of their girls day out, which is this whole spa is not exactly Toph's kind of place. Are you ready for some serious pampering? Katara asks. Sure, Katara, whatever you say, as long as they don't touch my feet. Toph replies, which is exactly what they do at the spa. (laughs) Yep. Uh, It actually takes two women to hold Toph down as the third one scrubs her feet and I guess attempts to give her a pedicure. Can you imagine the calluses? I can't even imagine how much pain Toph must be in because she's used to focusing all of her abilities through her feet. That's a great point. Yeah. So I almost wondered if it was like dogs hearing a dog whistle kind of like or like, you know, how dogs like can hear better. Yeah. It was like that kind of like mentality where it's like a loud pitch screech and it's just painful to them. Like the same thing with her is like you touch your feet. It's just extra sensitive. Yeah, this is what I imagine. <laughs> it, yeah. And also the calluses. Toph responds by exploding and throwing a fissure fit. That's what I'm going to call these from now on whenever she like fissure fit fissure fit. Yeah, I like it. Uh which sends the woman working on her feet flying out of the room. Ouch. Things do go a little smoother as the two girls enjoy a mud bath a little bit later. Toph has her fun and bends the mud on her face to create like a spooky kind of appearance. So it's like a, I think it's like an alien slug monster looking thing. Yeah. Is what I would best say. The woman who is bringing them hot towels sees this and runs away in terror as the two girls laugh. Finally, the girls enjoy a relaxing time in the sauna. Toph Earth bends some more hot rocks onto the pile while Katara uses her water bending to splash the rocks and create more steam. The two friends let out a relaxing sigh. That is more their speed, especially yeah. the mud bath. That's like Toph. Talk about a, a healthy layer of dirt. That's like <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> a super healthy layer of dirt, a.k.a. mud. Yes. Yeah. This relaxing feeling doesn't last too long, though, unfortunately, as Toph and Katara are walking around town with their faces made up, a group of three older mean girls walk up and begin to insult them. More Toph. They insult Toph. Yeah. They throw in the, wow, great makeup for a clown, which, you know, that whole that old insult where they like wait for you to say like, ah, thanks. They go, yeah, you're a clown. Ha ha ha. We got you. I hate that. so Classic. Which obviously makes Toph feel a little embarrassed and self-conscious. Katara tries to hurry Toph along, but when the mean girls continue and note that Toph is cute, kind of like one of their pet poodle monkeys in a sweater kind of cute, Toph unexpectedly begins to laugh. She laughs about how the poodle dig was a good one, but you know what else is a good dig? When you earth bend a hole underneath them and send them <laughs> flying into a so river below. So satisfying. Yeah. I also like that that was kind of a a pun with that where she was like yeah you know what else is good because they're digging at her and then she digs a hole underneath them yeah that's very subtle (laughs) i like that uh anyways toff yeah she slams her foot on the ground and like they go down like a bugs bunny style hole in this bridge that they were walking on and the three girls fall in and get soaked now that was funny katara says as she water bends a wave that sweeps the girls away and they scream talk about bonding yeah Katara catches up to Toph and assures her friend that those mean girls don't know what they're talking about. Toph says that it's okay. She has found that one of the benefits of being blind is that she doesn't have to waste her time worrying about appearances. She doesn't care what she looks like, and she's not looking for anyone's approval. Katara admits that this is what she admires about Toph, her strength and confidence. And even though it doesn't matter to Toph, Katara does tell her friend that she is really pretty. Toph cheers up from hearing this and says she would return the favor. But she has no idea what Katara looks like. <laughs> she then thanks her friend by punching her in the arm. The Yay. end. Yes. Really sweet, actually. Yeah, this one was a very straightforward, very sweet kind of tale. We do get to see the two girls bonding, which I like that they were kind of at odds in the beginning. And then they kind of just come together towards the end. So I'm looking yeah. forward to see what happens with that friendship as we go through. They finally found some middle ground, which was satisfying to watch because... 
ever since Toph joined the team, Katar has been the overbearing mom figure, the sugar queen, as Toph calls her. And they've kind of been at odds. And then if they're not having like a spat or some sort of interaction where there's some conflict, they're doing things. They're defeating a drill, trying to drill through the Basingse wall. They're trying to accomplish something. So it's nice to see them come together and find some middle ground as people where they were able to do this activity together and enjoy their time, but then also like make a true connection where Toph appreciates Katara protecting her and standing up for her. And Katara really wants Toph to know that she is special and she is pretty and she has value. And so they both like teach each other something in this and they both like complement each other in different ways, which I think is healthy for for their relationship going forward. Yeah, I agree. It's good to see them wade through the waters of their friendship and come to a common ground. Wow. <laughs> I wow. was thinking about that the entire time you were talking. <gasps> oh my God. I thought you were a little too quiet. <laughs> Formulating a double pun. (laughs) Double pun. All right. So uh, this next tale, get ready. Get some tissues out. I, oh man, I'm not, I'm never ready for this tale. I pinged Acorn about this earlier. I don't know if you'll find this meaning. I'll bring it up at the end. I thought of something that made me actually tear up a little bit more about this episode. So I will obviously try to make everyone else tear up since I teared up and I'll share it at the end. (laughs) Okay. The tale of Iroh. This was written by Andrew Hubner. Ira walks through a marketplace over at Ba Sing Se and happens over to a picnic basket and runs his hand over it, feeling the texture of the weave. If this is for a romantic picnic, may I suggest the lavender one, the shop owner says as he points to a more ornate looking basket. Ira hands the shop owner a coin and says that while this is not a romantic picnic, it is a special occasion. He takes his non-romantic basket and walks away. As he is walking, he sees a vase. I'm going to break the break the smooth Greg for a minute. Acorn, do you say vase or vase? Honestly, it depends on the sentence. Okay. Sometimes I'll say vase. Sometimes I'll say vase. Interesting. I always it's say vase. It's also like caramel, caramel. I say both. It depends on what I'm referring I to. I never say caramel. I only say vase or caramel when I'm like, I think I'm poking fun at something. <laughs> for me it's face yeah i'm not i'm not a fancy guy i don't have fancy pronunciations about things uh, i was just curious anyways back into it everyone serious face back on smooth greg smooth greg here we go as he is walking he sees a vase containing a single wilting flower he pushes the flower into the shade and it perks right up the moon flower likes partial shade iroh says with a smile as the floor smiles back as a thank you they both bow in respect and Iroh moves about his day. Iroh finds himself at another shop, this one selling musical instruments. As he ponders over the selection of an instrument, his attention is brought to a child crying in the streets with his mother trying to console him. Iroh takes an instrument from the shop and starts singing as he walks towards the boy. When he finishes his performance, he is kneeling next to the boy who is no longer crying. The young boy then tugs at Iroh's beard just a little too tight, which causes Iroh to groan while the boy laughs. The mother takes her son's hand and they walk away as Iroh smiles. This part, just because I've seen this episode so much, when he first sings this song, Mm -hmm. I lost it. Really? The first time? Oh, because I knew it was going to happen later. And my brain went there. And so I started crying at this. Yeah. Also, I have a note about the musical instrument. It is a real instrument. Mm Mm-hmm. The Lucan, or I almost think it's Chin at the end because of the Q-I-N, but it's L-I-U-Q-I-N. Mm-hmm. And it is a four-stringed plucking instrument used to complement short or simple folk songs. It huh. is made from brown wood and is rounded at the bottom while the top is triangular. The tip of the instrument is rounded and has four cone-shaped turning pegs made from stone. These are commonly found throughout alleyway shops in Ba Sing Se, and I believe is a Chinese instrument. Hmm. It makes sense since he found it in the Earth Kingdom. And the Earth Kingdom is, I think what we discussed was based partially upon Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, can confirm it is specifically a four or five string Chinese mandolin. Oh, that makes sense. That's really cool. Yeah, especially the shape, right? Very yeah. mandolin-esque. For sure, yeah. 
Iroh continues and cuts through a courtyard and watches four boys playing earthbending ball. This group is having fun until one of the boys accidentally breaks a window with the ball, which causes a man to yell at them. It is usually best to admit mistakes when they occur and seek to restore honor, Iroh tells the boys. But when the earth shakes as the man who lives in that building goes up to his broken window, we see that he is huge. And after he threatens the group, Iroh adds, but not this time. Run! As everyone <laughs> takes off. Was it just me or did the main kid dribbling the ball kind of look like Aang in book three? I thought he had. He looked kind of like one of the kids from the Earthbending Academy with Master Yu. He had like that yeah, same that haircut. Too. So I uh-huh. wonder if he's a fan of the hippo. Might, might be. <laughs> might be. That's, that's my headcanon is that kid is, is, the, is a fan of the hippo, which is great. But yes, Iroh runs away from the huge, giant, scary man and retreats a few blocks over into a dark alley. He places his picnic basket on the ground and watches for the huge angry man. You, give me all your money, a normal-sized voice says. Iroh turns around to see a mugger with a weak stance trying to take advantage of an old man. That old man is Iroh, by the way, everyone. Don't get confused. Anyways, Iroh catches the mugger off guard and then demonstrates how weak his stance is by knocking the mugger to the ground and disarming him with a single movement. Iroh offers his hand and helps the mugger back up from the ground. He then hands the mugger back his knife and then shows him how a proper, solid stance would make him a much more serious threat. Iroh points out that his assailant does not appear to be the criminal type, and the man admits that he's just confused. Moments later, the two share a hot cup of tea together, and we learn that the mugger, whose name is Tycho, just wants to be a masseuse and that nobody has ever really believed in him before. Iroh tells him that he could be a great masseuse and leaves him with this parting thought. While it is always best to believe in oneself, a little help from others can be a great blessing. Now, a quick voice acting note. There's only a couple in here that were of note. Tycho is voiced by Quentin Flynn, who is Axel from the Kingdom Hearts series. (gasps) He voiced uh, Reno from Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. Oh my god. Aruka Sensei from Naruto and Khan from Bleach. Oh, wow. That's just brief. Like his IMDb page goes on for quite some time. I recognized it kind of as Axel, but yeah. I didn't I didn't hear Aruka Sensei at all, which I thought was really interesting. But yeah, that's a big pull right there. Yeah, seriously. All right, everyone, get your tissues ready. Here we go. <laughs> the sun is setting over the city of Ba Sing Se. Leaves fall from a single tree atop a hill as Iroh approaches it. Iroh places the picnic basket at the base of the tree and removes his hat as he admires the sight of the great city. He kneels down in front of the tree and carefully stacks some rocks. So for me, this is reminiscent of what what is done at a gravesite. Mm -hmm. A little, little personal information. I was raised Jewish. So like, I remember very distinctly going to like my grandmother's gravesite and my dad or my grandfather placing rocks around it and on top of it. So when I first saw this episode, I was like, no, no, no. Okay. And after Iroh does this, he begins to set up his picnic. He pulls out a sheet of paper and looks at it for a moment and then closes his eyes before placing it at the base of the tree. Iroh finally pulls out two incense sticks and lights them with his fingers. Happy birthday, my son, Iroh says, as we notice that his picnic basket is a memorial for his fallen son. Luten, if only I could have helped you. Tears fill Iroh's eyes as he sings. Leaves from the vine Falling so slow Like fragile tiny shells Drifting in the foam Little soldier boy Come marching home Brave soldier boy Comes marching home. My eyes are welling up a little bit. <laughs> I know. Mine too. Uh, okay. So that is the end of this episode. There are a couple things I want to talk about before we move on to the tale of Aang. There is a line. I don't know which one it was, but there is a line that is actually delivered by Greg Baldwin, who actually takes over the character of Iroh, and also Aku from Samurai Jack. And the fact that you can't tell where the line is 
is just a shining example of how good Greg Baldwin is. Yeah, that's a testament to how good his voice acting is. Yes. And of course, he took over because this is the point at which Mako passed away. The voice right. of Iroh. But he doesn't fully take over until the end of book two. Yeah. So I think what happened was they recorded a whole bunch. They needed to go back to re-record or they did rewrites or something. And Mako had already passed. Yep. Which also makes this part so much more sad. So much more sad. And they dedicated it to yeah, Mako. That was which, really nice. Like phew, layers of feels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the hill where Iroh sets up his altar for his son is identical to the hill shown in the flashback in the beginning of the episode, Bitter Work. Yeah, I noticed that. And I don't know if it was an intentional thing where I, I don't think Iroh in Luten spent any time inside Bossing Say where that was literally the hill. Right. But right. I do think that from a design standpoint, that was the same design. They just reused it in the animation or something. Yeah, for sure. Um, There's also something I want to talk about how yes. it's it's so sad to me that Iroh, all he ever does is believe in and help others. And he spends his entire tale helping people across the city mm -hmm. and then deals with his grief on his own. It's like, while that is a very personal thing, and I think it's totally fine that he spent that time grieving the loss of his son on his birthday. It's also like his tale really drove home to me. Iroh just constantly helps others and people don't really ever help him. Yeah, I actually, I had a, a different interpretation of that and this is my big theory because it actually ties very closely to what you're talking about okay yeah i think that his day was spent as an entire memorial for his son think of it this way okay he grabs a picnic basket the shop owner is like oh do you want something more romantic for me that symbolizes this is going to be a little gross for some of our younger listeners i think but the conception of his son he goes out on a date with luten's mom right and that's how mm. babies happen the next thing he sees besides the flower, is a kid crying in the street, Luten as a young boy. Oh my God. He calms the kid down with a song that he later sings at his son's memorial. That's like a personal song to both of them. That was probably the song that calmed his son down. Mm -hmm. The next thing he does is he watches four boys playing soccer or football if you're in the UK. They break a window, which is a classic you're messing around in the backyard with the ball kind of scenario. Yeah. I would imagine that happened with Luten. And he's trying to teach them a lesson of like, you know, you have to apologize. Unfortunately, the guy is super angry and super large. So he's like, just kidding, run. The second time is teaching fighting and teaching his son how to be a man. Yeah. Like I'm speaking in generalities. I understand that sentence can be problematic, but like he's teaching him how to be an honorable person and how to be how to defend himself. The thing he does after that is he goes to his son's grave. Oh, I did not think about it that way. So mm -hmm. Iroh's tale, his day is a mirror of Luten's life. Yeah. In in my head canon. Yeah. I I love that and I'm going to take that forever yeah. forever and ever because yes, I I actually love that how it's almost like like you said the romantic date where he first met Luten's mom and then from Luten as a baby and then a toddler and then a young man and yeah. then when he died early because he died a soldier in like what his 20s or something so he died Probably, very young yeah. yeah wow okay yeah that makes it better so that was my big that made me almost that made me cry a little more when i came to that yeah. realization i was just like oh no i'm not ready what made me cry even more is when his voice breaks yeah. as he's singing like oh god i'm i'm, I'm inconsolable at that yeah. point oh man so that was that episode that or that was that tale that was um really up there as a shining moment in the whole series for me. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Now let's get to something happy yeah. and upbeat with Aang. Well, I, I say happy, but it actually starts pretty sad. Yeah. So the tale of Aang was written by Gary Shepke and uh, Aang soars above the city and lands in what looks like a zoo, but it's pretty run down. The animals are all caged and look really depressed, almost lifeless for some of them. When Aang approaches a tiger dillo, that's really fun to say, by the way, Tiger Dillo. <laughs> yeah. He holds out his hand and notes how hungry the animal looks. The Tiger Dillo roars, which startles Aang, and then curls up in a ball and rolls deeper into its pen. They are hungry, Kenji the zookeeper tells the Avatar. He then mentions that the Dai Li won't give him any money because the kids stopped coming to his zoo since it's so run down. 
Walking through the zoo, it is apparent that Kenji cares deeply about these animals and sincerely wishes that he could give them the facility they deserve. Let's do it, Aang says, smiling. Kenji is a bit confused, but Aang tells the zookeeper that there is a big open space right outside the walls of the city. Kenji is a bit more of a realist, and he kind of asks, like, how are you going to get these animals to that open space? <laughs> Don't worry, Aang assures Kenji. I'm great with animals. Aang's not quite as great with animals as he thought, as the wild animals run amok in the streets. Hog monkeys destroy pottery, elephant mandrills stampede down the street, a platypus bear swings at people as it stands on its hind legs, the tiger dillo that we saw earlier is just bouncing around the city, and finally... Uh, there's a Rabaroo, which is super cute, by the way. It is. It's unfortunately not so cute to the cabbage merchant because it is just devouring his cabbages. The cabbage merchant tries to save a few heads of cabbage and begins to yell, my cabbage, but is interrupted as the Rabaroo looks him in the eyes. Oh, forget it, the merchant says as he walks away in defeat. <laughs> this is the last episode featuring the Cabbage Merchant, everyone. So get your laughs in while you can. I mean, yeah, I kind of get it at yep. this point. It's like, <laughs> cut your losses, man. Let's yep. just go go start a new dream. Uh, he is mentioned in the Ember Island players, but that's it. So, yep, he's given yeah. up on his dream. He's he's going to go be a lawyer like Mama Merchant, Mama Cabbage Merchant asked him to be. <laughs> or a doctor. I don't know. Anyways. Aang tries to help wrangle the animals, but he can't quite get a hold of the situation. This was so much easier in my head, he says as he scratches his head. Aang snaps his fingers and pulls out the bison whistle. He has an idea. He flicks up the whistle in the air and then inhales a ridiculous amount of air, which is obviously augmented by airbending, catches the whistle, yeah. and then blows into it as a sound wave just rushes through the entire city of Ba Sing Se, and Aang is at the epicenter. Every animal in the city hears this and rushes towards Aang, chasing him as they rush through the city to the gates. Kenji pleads with the guards to open the gates, but they refuse to do so until Aang and his stampede of new friends come rushing towards them. The gate opens and the animals run into the open field as Aang earthbends a new facility for them. Kenji is so impressed with this new facility and the avatar that he notes that Aang should consider working with animals for a living. We then see someone's pet cat, Fluffykins, stuck in the elephant mandrills pen. And he is, this Fluffykins is hissing at the larger animal. Kenji then mentions that maybe Aang should just stick to saving people. <laughs> and everyone laughs. Uh, this one's pretty straightforward. The only bit of trivia I kind of brought up, I thought it was a nice, like, palate cleanser from Iroh's story. It was, Yeah. Because that was very heavy. And this one's just like, watch Aang be Aang with his like super awesome, like well animated expressions. And like that whole like flick of the whistle was really cool. I thought that was really well done. Yeah. I enjoyed that one. I couldn't help but think, though, that if Appa was somewhere in Bossing Say, he would have heard that and not been able to get to Aang. And it made me sad. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, thanks for that. I know. You're welcome. Have some feels. Let me shove it down your throat. <laughs> uh, all right. That brings us to the tale of Sokka, which uh, as a side note, I can't believe I'm going to say it. This is my least favorite tale out of all of them. It's um. it does nothing. Yeah. It literally does nothing. It doesn't have as much substance. It's like Sokka's external layer turned into a tale. It's just like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also think we get enough of Sokka's personality that we didn't need this necessarily. Exactly. It didn't add another like layer of depth to his character. Right. It's, it's like who he has been this whole time. Yeah. He's just Sokka cool guy. And it's just like, yeah. Okay, cool. I get it. All right. So anyways, this tale was written by Lauren McMullen, believe it or not, which I actually Yay. like. I like her episodes a lot, but this one, I don't know. It just wasn't for me. Anyways. Sokka walks through the streets of the city of Ba Sing Se. He looks incredibly bored and is casually tossing his boomerang as he walks. He heads down an alley and passes by a window where a young woman's voice attracts his attention. He sticks his head through the window where the voice is coming from and says, what's this? That's his best uh, Jack Skellington impression right there. So Sokka <laughs> Skellington, he says that as he watches a girl and this girl is, like looks about his age. And she's reciting a poem to a room full of other young women. Ah, poetry, Sokka says as he watches on in admiration of the delivery of the poem. And also, I think he's also kind of admiring the room full of young women. 
Suddenly, Sokka is kicked into the room by an ostrich horse, and the girls all gasp as he hangs halfway into the room. I am so sorry. Something struck me in the rear. I just wound up here, Sokka says, and all the girls laugh and clap at Sokka's accidental haiku. Five, seven, then five syllables mark a haiku. Remarkable oaf. A woman stands up with a more ornate headdress, and she recites that haiku as she stands up and bows her head and then glares at Sokka. Sokka's face twitches a bit, which is one of my favorite gifts, by the way. Yes. <laughs> and then comes up with another haiku. They call me Sokka, that is in the water tribe. And then he stops and he counts five syllables on his finger. I am not an oaf. And the ladies laugh at his haiku again. Tittering monkey. In the spring, he climbs treetops and thinks himself tall. The woman responds as she narrows her gaze. The girls interject at the obvious insult. I think really what it comes down to is Sokka loves to perform for yeah. the attention of women. So he's like, he's just so ready to impress them and get some cheers and claps. Yeah. I, I think he just likes attention in general, especially from pretty young women. But I think yes, he's he just does. a big attention, attention boy. Uh, so real quick, that woman who was like the head of the class or whatever, like she's running that whole academy. Uh, her name is Madame Makmu Ling, and she's the instructor of the 575 Society and is actually named after Lauren McMullen, who wrote this episode. Oh, I could see that. Yep. Makmu Ling, Makmullen. Yep. Also, really quickly, voiced by Melinda Clark, who, for all of you teen drama fans out there, she plays Julie Cooper, Nickel Roberts Cooper. Oh, okay. Yep. If you've ever seen Firefly, she was the um, madam in one of the episodes where they had oh. to all defend all the, um, all the women. She's in the Vampire Diaries as well as Gotham. Wow. Talk about teen drama. You're right. <laughs> yep. Yep. I love Melinda Clark, by the way. She's like amazing. She, she, this character is like right in her wheelhouse. She's very like condescending, very proud stern stern very very although sometimes she plays a floozy is what i found like in the oc like she's a little bit of a floozy but she's wonderful i love her so much very nice also madame macmuling contains five syllables ah! <laughs> that's, that's really funny <laughs> also if it isn't obvious this haiku contest Sokka has with madame macmuling is kind of like an avatar world equivalent of a modern day poetry slam or a rap battle where you go back and forth and try to one-up the other person. Mm. So I didn't put all of them in here, just because I didn't really dig them too much. Uh, that's another nice little pun. You, <laughs> oh, not pun, but like turn of phrase, I guess. So anyways, Sokka kind of continues effortlessly. You think you're so smart with your fancy little words. This is not so hard. After a back and forth of the haiku off, Sokka busts out a haiku that does not receive any praise from his adoring fans. When he sees this, he quickly counts the syllables and realizes his mistake. Uh, that's one too many syllables there, bub. A guard shows up out of nowhere and throws Sokka out of the building. <laughs> Fresh Prince of Bel-Air style. Yeah. With DJ Jazzy Jeff, like an Uncle Phil. is just like he's flying. He's out of there. Yep. Poetry, Sokka says in a slightly different tone. Yeah. He almost says it in like a like a dreamy, like regretful way. Like, uh, poetry. I See, I took it as more of a like poetry what are you gonna do like that kind okay. of like yeah yeah, yeah. That kinda, yeah but it's not as for me the second delivery wasn't as dreamy state as the first one where he was yeah. just like head yeah. over heels okay speaking of head over heels that brings us to mm -hmm. the tale of zuko which was written by katie Mattia. we find ourselves at the pow family tea house where zuko and iroh are working zuko whispers to his uncle that they have a problem he believes that one of the customers is on to them he points out a girl in a corner table and says that she knows their Fire Nation. You're right, Zuko. I've seen this girl in here quite a lot. Seems to me she has a little crush on you, Iroh says to his nephew, who is taken aback by his words. Thank you for the tea, the girl says as she pays for her cup. The girl then asks Zuko for his name, to which he introduces himself as Lee and his uncle as Mushi. The girl then introduces herself as Jin and asks if Zuko would like to go out with her sometime. He'd love to, Iroh slides <laughs> in and answers on his nephew's behalf. Jin then tells Lee to meet her in front of the shop at sundown. Iroh smiles and puts his arm around Zuko, who can only glare at his uncle. Uh, Jin is actually voiced by Marcella Lentz-Pope, 
who's been in Superbad. Uh, she's in League of Legends as a character named Kindred Lamb. I've never played League of Legends, oh. so I have no idea. Uh, she's also been in Blue Bloods, as well as the movie Trolls World Tour. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It is now sundown, and Zuko walks out of the tea shop, and it is very obvious that Iroh has dressed him. He is wearing <laughs> fancier clothes, and his hair is slicked back and kind of parted down the middle. Jin walks up to Zuko and notes how cute he looks and ruffles his hair until it's back to normal. It took my uncle 10 minutes to do my hair, Zuko says as he tries to stop the ruffling. You can never stop the ruffling, though. Once it starts, it never stops. Yeah. Jin grabs Zuko's arm and drags him away from the tea shop and into the town square. We next see Jin and Zuko sitting at a restaurant. Jin is drinking a cup of tea while Zuko is playing with the last meatball on his plate. Jin tries to make small talk with her date, but Zuko is giving brief answers and isn't really looking up from his food. He gives off this impression of like not being into her, but I just think he's like super nervous. He's super awkward. Yeah. Yeah. I love that dynamic, how he's nervous and she's just very accepting of that. Like she doesn't seem to be put off by the way he's acting at all. Oh, yeah. I love that, too. And I also love that, like how casual she is. Yeah. (laughs) Like she's not trying to impress anyone, which I love. I love that, too. Yeah. When a waiter walks up and asks Zuko if he or his girlfriend would like a dessert, Zuko overreacts and yells, this is not my girlfriend. (laughs) Everyone stares at the couple briefly, but it doesn't seem to bother either one of them. Yeah, I love that where like Zuko yells that like he overreacts and everyone's staring at them and Zuko's like, whatever, I don't care. And then she's just like, it's cool, whatever. Just slurping on some noodles. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You have quite an appetite for a girl, Zuko says as Jin slurps down a mouthful of noodles. Obviously not the best thing to say on a first date, but Jin kind of brushes the words away and asks more questions about life for Lee and Mushi before Ba Sing Se. Zuko kind of does leave his answers vague. He hasn't become a better liar in his new life. He's still nope. just like, uh, you know, we were out doing things. And, and really, he gives a solid answer once Jin really kind of presses for more information. So Zuko kind of lies and just says that they traveled as part of a traveling circus. They were in there. Of all things, Zuko. And I was like, really? Anyways, Jin asks, really, what did you do? And thinks for a moment and examines Zuko a little bit and says, you juggled. Zuko folds his arm and confirms her thoughts. When she asks Zuko to show her some juggling, he tries his best, but ultimately fails to do any sort of juggling and everything just crashes down on the table. (laughs) I love how he basically just like threw them up in yep. the air one at a time and then like expected something to happen <laughs> and then y'all just came crashing down there was a moment where i was like is he gonna get away with this does he know yeah. how to juggle and then he didn't i think it's um very similar to like where anyone if they've seen juggling before they go this can't be so hard they know how uh-huh. to do the movements but they don't have the hand-eye coordination so he does that right he does the movements yeah. and just nothing happens nothing good happens anyways i haven't practiced in a while he admits Jin tells him that it's all right, and she brings him to one of her favorite places in the city. I have a note about the date. Yeah. I read something interesting in the art book. Joaquin Dos Santos joined the Avatar crew on this episode, and while he had a reputation as an incredible action artist, his talent for comedy and subtle acting in storyboard work came through in this date scene between Zuko and Jin. Oh, for so sure. So he pretty yeah. much mapped out this whole exchange and the back and forth and the outbursts, the smooth overs and, and all of that. So props to Joaquim. Yeah, it was so well done. You don't really notice what's going on and you're you're more invested in it than you are aware of. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. That's all like the little micro expressions, the timing, all of that. It's just mm-hmm. beautifully done. Jin's favorite place in the whole city is called Firelight Fountain. And she brings Zuko there and tells the prince that she's so excited to show him the fountain because the lamps make the water sparkle and reflect in the pool in the most beautiful way. When the two reach the fountain, however, Jin is let down as the torches that surround the fountain were not lit tonight. Zuko looks at Jin and tells her to close her eyes and to not peek. When she does, Zuko firebends small flames into each of the torches with precision and grace. Okay, you can look now, he tells his date. Jin is overwhelmed with excitement and begins to ask, what happened and how did you do it? But she drops the thought and the two stare at the beauty of the fountain. Jin holds Zuko's hand and she leans in for a kiss 
But Zuko sticks a coupon for a free cup of tea in between their lips <laughs> and tells her that he brought it for her. Jin notes how sweet the coupon is, and Zuko is quick to tell her that it was his uncle's idea. Your uncle is a good teacher, Jin says, and she walks in close to Zuko. I have something for you, too. Now, it's your turn to close your eyes. Jin kisses Zuko, and Zuko kisses her back, but then quickly pulls away. When Jin asks what's wrong, Zuko tells her that it's complicated and leaves. I have a note here. What's wrong, Zuko? Was something crawling in your skin? Do you have wounds that won't heal, Mr. Lincoln Park? <laughs> are you are you awkward and troubled, Zuko? <laughs> you wouldn't get it. It's problems that I have <laughs> that are exclusive to me and no other teenager in the history of teenage writing. Oh, man. I love just how angsty of a teenager he I is. He's so it's angsty. like, it's so good. <laughs> But at the same time, I could not help but think yeah. it's a good thing that Jet is locked up at this point because he would be following Zuko if he was free and would have totally seen that fire bending. I actually think, yes, I agree. But I think it would be funnier if Jet was not locked up because he can you just imagine like Zuko going on this date and then we cut to Jet every once in a while who's trying to spy on them, but not doing such a hot job and like knocking things over. Yeah. Or if Jet was the waiter in disguise. Like how funny. Oh, would that, that would be, be funny. <laughs> that would. That would be a different kind of comedy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. So back at home, Ira was looking out the window and searching for any sign of his nephew, which is hilarious. Like, are you it's coming? So are you cute. Here? Zuko walks in the door, which means that he knows that Ira was probably looking for him. So he just sneaks in through a different like way, essentially. Which in my head canon, he's using his blue spirit training or <laughs> to skills try to, sneak in. to try to sneak in. So he doesn't have to answer any questions. Right. Yeah. So he kind of just does a teenager thing, right? Where he like storms into their apartment or their new home. And then um, when Iroh asks how his night went, Zuko just responds by slamming the door to his room. And it's like, boom. Yeah. I don't, yeah. don't want to talk to you. A moment later, Zuko cracks open the door, though, and admits that it was nice. He closes the door again, and Iroh was happy for his nephew. I love it. I love I their dynamics so much. Also, just like <laughs> when they first moved there, Iroh buys a bouquet to put in a vase. Yep. Here you go. That is where I want to say vase instead of vase. Okay. He buys flowers to make their place look nice, just in case Zuko brings home a lady friend. Mm hmm. And then later, when said lady friend starts hitting on Zuko, he's like, of course, my nephew would like to go on a date. <laughs> and he dresses him up and he brushes his hair. And he's like, just Iroh as a father figure is the cutest freaking thing ever. I also like that Iroh spent 10 minutes on Zuko's hair. Yeah, That's a 10 long time. minutes to make his nephew look nice <laughs> when really it was just awkward. Yeah, it was not <laughs> great. So that brings us to our final tale of Ba Sing Se which is also another, for me, another heartstring puller. Ugh, yeah. We had our break. Now back yeah. into the feels. This is The Tale of Momo, and it was written by Justin Ridge and Giancarlo Volpe. Momo is having a wonderful dream. He dreams that he is with Appa, and they fly up to a very tall tree and share the fruits that are hanging from the vines. As Momo is chewing on a fruit, he looks down at Appa, who suddenly roars very loudly. And Momo wakes up and jumps into Sokka's bag for comfort. When he pops his head out, there is a tuft of Appa's fur on his head. And when he sniffs it, he remembers a time of them flying together. He looks down at the ground and sees a bison-shaped shadow flying overhead. Momo ties the fur around his wrist and takes off after the shadow. But when he catches up to it, he realizes that the shadow belongs to a thundercloud. And he is missing his friend. Momo looks at his wrist and then looks up at a nearby rooftop where it looks like Appa is laying down. He rushes over only to see that the shape belongs to a tree with white leaves and the branches are kind of sticking out of those leaves and they resemble Appa's horns. Momo lands on one of these branches and is sad. The flying lemur then flies through the city and stops at a barrel filled with water for a quick drink. He clumsily knocks over a stick with his tail as he enjoys his drink. Which, unfortunately, gets the unwanted attention of nearby pygmy pumas. They growl and screech at Momo, who immediately runs away in terror. The pygmy pumas chase Momo through the streets and even manage to knock him down when he tries to fly away. Momo tries to use a nearby crowd for cover, but he is immediately grabbed by a man who puts a tiny hat on the lemur and throws him into the middle of a street show. Momo plays along and dances with the other small monkeys, 
as the crowd claps and cheers, which is hilarious and cute, yeah, by the way. it is. His dance is so ridiculous. Yeah. And that, that music, too. The, uh, mur, 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 yeah. Mur. yeah. I love that. <laughs> Perfect. The pygmy pumas catch up to Momo and break up the show as Momo jumps out of his hat and tries to fly away. Seconds later, the pumas rip him out of the sky and have him in their clutches when a net comes out of nowhere and covers and captures all the animals. We see that the net belongs to an animal control officer, and he cages Momo separate from the pumas. When the officer locks Momo's cage, the lemur looks at the fur tied to his wrist and snuggles it closely and purrs. The animal control officer tries to sell the animals to a nearby butcher, and while Momo can't understand their words, he knows this is not good. Momo is able to easily free himself from his cage and is about to take off when he looks back and sees that the Pumas are scared because they know what's going to happen. Being the greatest bean that there ever was, Momo jumps up and frees the Pumas, who all take off to the rooftops and are now best friends forever. That was so wholesome. I know. One of the Pumas unties the tuft of fur and runs off with it. Momo chitters after the Puma, but ultimately chases it through the city. The Puma drops the fur on the ground, and then they all run away as it begins to rain. Momo jumps on top of the fur and holds it tight. When the camera pulls out, we see that Momo is resting in a giant footprint that belongs to his lost friend, Appa. That's the episode. No. Yeah. My only notes for this episode is one word. Yeah. Tears. Yes. Yeah. This one, very straightforward, but it was very well done. Again, not a single line of dialogue yeah. was said. Oh, and that, that's not true. There was like, I don't know, like m- not mumbling. There, like It was like Momo listening to people talk, which he doesn't understand. So it was like, but that was Charlie Brown voice type thing. There's no like meaningful dialogue in there. It's all just like read through expressions and the environment and all of that. This is actually the last time that Momo's signature theme is heard. Oh, man. But that is the tales of Ba Sing Se. Now. We're not going to tell you our MVP like I told you in the beginning beginning of the episode. And we're not going to go through a moral of the story because there are so many different stories and there are so many mm-hmm. different tales that we would be here forever. And I know a lot of people are just like, yeah, just do it. We want to be here forever. It's like, well, no, I'm going to respect your time and let you know that you can go listen to other episodes of Avatar the Podcast again. <laughs> what I want to know, Acorn, is what is your favorite tale from this episode? Oh, uh, I have to say Zuko's. Really? Yeah. I'm actually surprised. I I love it for a lot of reasons. And I think it's actually me cheating because mm-hmm. I would say Iroh's, mm-hmm. but I also really like Zuko's and Iroh makes an appearance in Zuko's. So it's kind of like I get both. Fair. That's fair. What about you? I thought for sure we're going to have to fight over Iroh's tale because Iroh's is my favorite. But if you had said Iroh's, my close second is Momo's tale. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is really cute. It's really cute. It is very well written, well done. They express so much emotion and so much thought and care into an episode with no dialogue or a part of the episode with no dialogue. And it also just like pulls at your heartstrings. Like it is just the tale of a friend missing another friend and trying to find them no matter what the cost. I think what it does really well, too, is portrays Momo's and Appa's friendship in a way that we haven't seen before because we kind of take them for granted. It's like they're the two animals in the group. So of course yeah. they're going to interact. They're going to be friendly with each other. But I feel like this is the first time I've really gotten how close they are because mm. Momo is extremely sad that Appa's gone. Yeah, And getting on those reminders just makes him even more sad. And I think that's cool because if we think back to the start of the show, they didn't know each other. It was yeah. Aang and Appa in the iceberg. And they only met Momo later at the Southern Air Temple. So they're new friends. They've only been friends for a couple months. It's not like the bond between Aang and Appa. But I think because of their their background coming from the temple, I think they formed a really close friendship. And so it's just cool to see it from Momo's perspective in this tale. I think something that sways me in this as well is he also might not understand what's going on. Yeah, like what happened? I know something bad happened. So even though Toph told everyone, he can't understand yep. humans. So he's just like, my friend was here and now he's not. 
oh no that makes me think when a family member dies unexpectedly and the dog like doesn't get it and just mopes around the house because it's where's dad where's mom yeah yeah or they like go over to that person's favorite chair and just stare Mm -hmm. at it yeah Yeah. oh that's heartbreaking i know yeah all right i'm gonna cry not not while i'm recording though i cry anymore (laughs) stop it uh well you know maybe after next episode we should be fine i hope but Uh, yeah we'll see we'll see we'll see looking forward to that and that is actually all of the time that we have that's everything we want to talk about for the tales of ba sing say remember you're caught up on all the episodes uh you can join me over twitch.tv slash booster greg you might notice that my streams are a little less frequent now potentially we are recording this a little bit ahead for that i apologize it is a good reason but i am always on twitter you can always join the geek generation discord that just pops up my phone it's impossible to ignore and we've actually had a lot of more new friends come in and share mm-hmm. some more news memes all that great stuff as well so yeah yeah and you can find me online at acorn bandit and also on joysons.com the home of our avatar the podcast pins yeah and don't forget about the patreon you can always find us over at or not find us but you can always help out if you want over at patreon.com slash avatar the podcast the link for that will also be in the show notes it's just in case anyone can't write this down because you're driving please don't crash your car because you're driving and listening to this that would be, <laughs> not be great but yeah if you want to help support the show you can do so over there as well as like we said in the beginning leaving a five-star written review over on apple podcast or just telling your friends or going to the town center and screaming out or actually no we already said yelling it from the rooftops so going to the town center getting the largest bluetooth speaker that you can find and playing it make sure you have a permit (laughs) extra points if it's at the firelight fountain Ooh, yes extra points for that all right coming up next time appa joins the circus and need to get a message to the avatar use the air bison courier service all this and more next time on avatar Avatar, the the Podcast. podcast Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com. 